Hey, what's happening, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today's very special guest is Jason Wessel. Jason is a psychologist who actually did his PhD in something that I think is probably one of the most important problems in, I was going to say America, but probably the world today, or at least any Western country, is procrastination. When we talk about procrastination, a lot of times it's seen in a very jovial light, like, oh, I'm just such a procrastinator. I did this, I did this, but... We're starting to see that procrastination actually has a lot to do with your mental health and your mental well-being, especially when you're not able to go out to a social event, i.e. social anxiety. I think that model works with a lot of other mental illnesses. You can find Jason at his website, drjasonwessel.com. Also, you can check out his weight loss app at contemplateweightloss.com. It helps you keep track of your values as you continue your weight loss journey. Jason brings up a lot of important points about a subject that I really didn't think that I was going to be interviewing anybody on. I didn't think that there was so much research put into this, but as I'm starting to see with any of the mental health uh, studies or anything like that, you start to see that every little thing has some type of expert in it. But without further ado, let's get straight into the video. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back to the Mental Health Chats, and welcome back to Mental Health Casual. I'm your host, Lucky, and today we have another very special guest, and he talks about something that's very important to me because I am... I, I remember I had a lot of pride in being a procrastinator. I just always would tell people like, oh, I didn't even study for this test and then I'd ace it. And that went on for a while until eventually I got into drugs and alcohol. And then I, oh, I didn't even study for that test and I failed it. And, you know, eventually it got worse and worse and worse. And so uh, it, it's interesting how the these things that we don't really look about, look at and we, we joke about can ev sometimes end up piling up so much that it affects big parts of our lives, big um, decisions that we make and all that kind of stuff. So Jason, thank, thank you so much for being here. And I just want to ask you first off, I mean, um, how did you get into the mental health field? And, you know, what, what does your research kind of um, uh, focus on? Uh, good question. I got into mental health. Uh, I think the first time I really remember thinking I wanted to be a psychologist was when I was about 14 years old. And there was a really pretty girl that was talking to me, but I wasn't really paying attention to her. Uh, and then after she was talking for about you know, four or five minutes, she said, oh, Jason, you're, you're a really good listener. You should be a psychologist. And I was like, oh, is that, is that what I was doing? Great. Okay. <laughs> good idea, pretty girl. I'll do what you say. Uh, I didn't really think that seriously of it, but I didn't have anything else to, to do. So I was like, yeah, why not? Sounds like a great idea. But I hated school, man. I really, like, I was not, <laughs> clearly not a very attentive person. Uh, either, you know, talking to people or uh, at school and classes and listening to teachers. So I, you know, I was, a, I was a D and an E student. I, you know, I don't think they actually handed out formal Fs, but I was definitely in the fail category. Um, and so I, I liked the idea of being a psych, but I knew that it involved a lot of uh, university study and that didn't seem realistic given my track record with study. Um, so it was kind of just an idea, but uh, not one that I really ever thought that I was going to act on. Uh, I ended up dropping out of school, moving out of home, you know, doing 
doing drugs. So I won't describe the full list, but uh, you know, having having frankly a good time. I wasn't unhappy. I was quite happy. Um, but that only lasted probably about three or so years when I realized that you know, I'm not really getting anywhere. And you know, I saw people around me. You know, I was working in retail, and I saw my fifty year old managers, just miserable, miserable people. And I thought, well, if I don't do something to um, progress myself, then that's my future. And is that really the future that I want? Um, and I, I kind of just wanted more. I thought I could do more. I, re I realized, you know, if there are any good things about drugs, I think there's a lot of time, you know, dreaming and thinking and imagining different things. And I just kind of, one of the things I, I felt pretty confident about was that I've just got this one shot at life and I want to experience it. I don't want to live it and I want to make the most of it. And I want to, you know, be, have a positive impact and, and not leave it worse off or not leave people around me worse off. And that kind of philosophy really gelled with, well, one, not wanting to leave people worse off and generally liking people and wanting to help them. Um, plus wanting to do something with my life. And, and that probably meant challenging myself and doing things that were really hard. Uh, I thought, well, going to university would be really hard, but what's the alternative staying here? I don't really like that. So, Hey, let's, let's do it. Um, turns out I really liked university and to me, it wasn't anything like school. So I really thrived there and I ended up being, uh, about 21 when I started. So not particularly mature age, only, te only technically mature age, but still a few years ahead of my peers or older than my peers, rather, um, arguably a few years behind them, but you know, a few years, uh, older than my peers. So I, I felt like I wasn't really there for the social outlet. I was just there to absorb myself in the craft and learn as much as possible and sort of, you know, reach this goal or, you know, uh, excel or improve myself. Um, psychology is a long journey after my undergraduate uh i i couldn't afford to you know fend for myself and uh and keep studying full-time uh with the level of commitment and dedication that you need to uh, in postgraduate stuff so i i entered the workforce i ended up working in one of my first professional roles with an undergraduate degree in psychology was as a rehabilitation counselor where i worked with people that had workplace injuries that um, when clients came to me, it was generally when they were coming up to two years after their first injury. And it was clear at that point that they couldn't go back to their pre-injury line of employment, whether that was the, you know, often, often builders, landscapers, uh, you know, tradespeople, blue collar stuff, usually guys, because most people that work in rehabilitation counseling are, uh, are women. So um, yeah, I being a man got a lot of the, the blue collar blokes that, uh, I guess the, the case managers thought would, would do better with a bloke. Um, and in working with those, I love that job, man. I love working with people that are at this real cross roads in their life that are kind of like I was deciding to go back to uni, like knowing that if they stay on this path, that it's not going to lead them anywhere that they want um, and working with them on their potential and their future and their options. And as horrible as having an injury and losing a great sense of identity that you'd built up, as horrible as that is, it's, it's also kind of beautiful to reinvent yourself. And it's almost like, you know, I, I think that you only really get one shot at life, but in this way, you kind of get two uh, you know, you get to reinvent yourself. You get to live a different life that you might not have otherwise done. And I think that can be really wonderful. And I was finding, I was having conversations with people, uh, with clients that were really 
getting excited about this second opportunity of all the things that they could do. And we talk about, you know, what they had to do between now and next week to progress their, their story and, and take positive steps towards the change that they really need to, to move on with their life. And then he got excited and we grant a plan and go, great. Okay. I'll see you next week. Come back and we'll, we'll you know, talk about the next steps after that. And so they'd go away or positive. I'd be great. They'd come back the week later and they hadn't done those small steps that they said that they were going to, to take. They hadn't taken them. And that was, that was sadly, that was kind of the majority of my clients. Some clients were great and they were off and to the races and that would take more steps than we ever discussed. And it's almost like those people didn't need my help. It was the people that got stuck frequently needed my help. And it was very hard going. And I got to the point where that, again, that was the majority of my clients. And I started to think, well, like, is it just these people? Cause I believe them. I believe that they really want to do it, but so often they are not. And so why are they not? Is it them? Is it me? Is it the system? Um, and I started thinking it was the system. So I was like, okay, well, I, I, you know, I want to help a, a large number of people, you know, I want to affect change on a larger scale. Uh, so I, you know, I went to government work. I tried to learn the system, get involved, make change. Anyone that's ever, you know, gone to government work with the idea of wanting to create change. That is stupid. Don't do that. You're naive. <laughs> no please don't take me too seriously like you know great ambitious do it try but man i just felt like the tiniest most ineffectual cog in a, in a massive massive machine and it was a really frustrating experience so anyway i ended up um you know working around in government and and you know was able to work myself into a, a financially stable enough position to um go back to study do my postgraduate qualify as a fully fledged psychologist and as part of that i did a phd and looking for a topic in in psychology for my, for, for my PhD thesis, um, I, you know, I stumbled across the procrastination literature and it just, it answered so many questions. You know, it, it explained so much about, not that I, I'd never thought that they were procrastinating, but you know, the definition of procrastination is really like, there's something that you want to do and you're not doing it. And because you're not doing it sooner rather than later, your life is going to be harder. Things are going to be worse off for you if you don't do it sooner rather than later. Um, I was like, oh, well, that's exactly what they were doing. And, um, and I didn't really understand enough about well, why and what to do about that. Uh, and so, yeah, fast forward, you know, a few years later, I, you know, I finished my PhD in procrastination. Uh, I ran a series of experimental studies. I kind of learned a lot about why we procrastinate. Um, it's such a, it's such a prevalent, it's a massive problem, man. Like something like 95% of the world admit to procrastinating the other five percent i think are liars 20 percent of the world's uh you know pr procrastinate problematically like chronically to the point that they would say that it seriously affects their lives it's 20 percent of people all globally like that that transcends culture transcends language it's it's everywhere um yeah it's more prevalent than like depression anxiety although but we joke about procrastination it's funny you know we wear it as a badge of honor sometimes um and so it doesn't have anywhere near uh, the level of serious focus that, that other mental health related challenges receive. And I think that's a bit of a travesty, but it also meant that there was a lot of low hanging fruit and there's ways to think about mental health and how to improve your station and situation and motivation and momentum in life that had previously been kind of unexamined. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm pretty lazy and I'm a hungry guy. I'm going to go for that, <laughs> that low hanging fruit. And, you know, I ended up finding a way to, you know, within 
you know, just creating a bit of an app. It was in a research kind of lab. So it was a really you know, dodgy app back then uh, that would just provide people with these, what I call reflection prompts. So get them to reflect on the reasons that they're procrastinating or rather the reasons that they're not more immediately following through with what they want to do. Um, get them to think about it in a new way to, to keep that sense of motivation and what drives them and what they're able to do and, and what they know will work for them more in the forefront of their mind consistently. And what I was really aiming at was to kind of help people between sessions, right? Because my rehab clients, I'd see them on Monday one week and then Monday the next week. And I could, I could work with them on those Mondays for those hours, but I couldn't do it. I, you know, what they did between that was out of my, out of my hands. Uh, it was up to them. So I wanted something that was a little bit more of like a drip feed to keep them connected to what their real goal was, was. So when life gets in the way and things pop up that doesn't derail them completely, or if it does derail them, they don't go too far off the tracks and they're brought back just subtly, subtly brought back to, to their goals. Um, and so, you know, I came up with this way to do it. I ran a few random control trials. It was quite successful, um, by, you know, scientific standards, um, you know, I published that work. And then, you know, I've since then, since finishing my PhD, I'm now practicing as, as a psychologist and I'm, I'm trying to grow that research and that approach to helping people pursue their goals, things that are really important to them. And I'm, I'm starting with weight loss, um, because yeah, weight loss, again, talking about low hanging fruit of procrastination, it's not something that people really traditionally think of as procrastination. It's, but it is by definition often, you know, I think it explains a, a lot of people's situation that struggle with weight loss. It's something that, yeah, they want to do, but day to day, they don't necessarily engage in the right behaviors that they know that they, they need to be doing. Uh, and by not engaging in those behaviors that would otherwise help them make, you know, steadier progress towards their, their goal, their life will be worse off because of it. You know, there, there are a greater risk for cardiovascular disease. There are a greater risk of, you know, knee problems later in life. Um, you know, all, all sorts of negative consequences, um, but they don't do it. And so, you know, using the same approach, it's been quite effective. You know, before I, I built this app commercially, I tested it much like I would um, running any kind of experiment, uh, collected pilot data, did early interviews with people. And the, the phenomenon that I noticed in my, in my procrastination app approach in my research absolutely transcended and, you know, were transferred across to the weight loss domain. So it seems to work just as effectively um which i think is is cool so yeah anyway a bit of a long bit of a long winding story but that's kind of what's brought me to to where I'm, i am and yeah i guess how i how i spend my days now and what mental health kind of means to me and my approach to it absolutely i mean i think you you hit on a lot of really good points there and i think one of them is you know this idea that because you know i since i was diagnosed with social anxiety one of the things that um drove me mad was when people would call it called it like the butterflies and they were just like oh you just got the butterflies and i was just like no i'm like freaking out here you know <laughs> like chill out um and it's interesting to see some of these less talked about subjects or yeah, it's not that they aren't talked about it. it's like they're basically joked about like you'd said before um to the point where you know people get so comfortable with them 
And, you know, we were talking a little bit off air and, you know, it's one of the things I, I call out on my own culture, which is, you know, the Samoan culture is, you know, this idea that we're just supposed to be, you know, big, but I mean, I don't mind like the big as in like, you know, bulky big, like you're actually working out and you're uh, eating the right things like the rock or something like that. But, you know, now we're, we're kind of getting in the big category of just like, we just eat everything around and we put mayonnaise on everything, you know? And so it gets to the point where, you know, I, I feel like we, we, we end up kind of um, sure, I guess to a certain extent, sugarcoating some of these things so they're more palatable, so to speak. And it's just, you know, I don't think it really works as well, you know, when we're really speaking about things that we really do need to change. I mean, it comes to the same thing with alcoholism or um, addiction, right? People always think like, oh, it's, you know, he's not drinking a bunch of alcohol like you were or anything like that. But it's like, okay, but is it interfering with his life? Is it ruining his relationships? Is it doing this? And is he still doing it despite those reasons? Okay, then he's got an addiction, mm. you know what I'm saying? And people think mm. about it in numbers, but I, I, you have to look at it more in, in a practical sense. Is it stopping certain things? And procrastination, all, I, I feel like pretty much 100% of the time does get in the way of things in your life you know it always does and as by much definition. as I, yeah by definition right and mm. you know one of the things that I had, I had read a little bit about was this idea of um of passive and active procrastination could you talk a little bit about those two because I thought it was fascinating I'd never really thought about I'd only ever heard of the passive kind which I, mm. I I feel like I fall into quite a bit but I'd never heard about the active kind could you kind of talk about those and what separates them and is one, is one better than the other? Because it seemed like when I was reading about it, it seemed like one kind of leaned towards more, of, I guess, more of a positive light on it. But I mean, could you explain those two and what the differences are? Yeah, for sure. I think it comes down to a little bit like you were saying that we dismiss procrastination sometimes as being funny. And one of the ways to dismiss it is uh, sometimes people say, ah, you know, like I, I like procrastinating. I like waiting for the pressure of the deadline because then I, I get to be hyper-focused and I use that to motivate me. I do really good work under time pressure. And so that's that concept of active procrastination that you lean into that procrastination type tendency to exploit the pressure of a, of a tight deadline. Um, the research on active procrastination sort of suggests that people that do that tend not to suffer the same consequences of people that procrastinate passively. That is like without that intentional, you know, leading into the pressure of the deadline, but it's a contentious topic in the literature basically because there's a lot of people that argue, well, you know, if you're doing it intentionally, is it even procrastination or is it what we would call strategic delay? Um, and so it's already been kind of dismantled as like, it's not even a thing. Like it, it kind of falls over at the first hurdle of the definition of procrastination, but I took a slightly different approach. Um, so I wrote a paper on this. I think it was published in maybe 2018. I don't remember, but you know, a few years ago. Um, and what I did, I just, I just tracked people in their behavior and how they progressed the task. Uh, and I measured them on both active and passive procrastination. And I found that people that scored highly in passive procrastination, these people that you, you might describe as being chronic problem procrastinators, they really put things off until the last minute. So their, their progress that they made on a task started off really flat. And then as the deadline approached, it would sort of ramp up to, you know, to 100% completing that task right on or a little bit past the deadline, right? That's what we consider to be like a traditional trajectory of progress for a passive procrastinator. 
people that said that they actively procrastinate, you would think that they follow that same sort of line um, because they want to use that, that pressure of the deadline, you know, a few days before, but they don't, you know, the research, uh, at least the one that I did, uh, people that scored really high in the highest quarter of all people that scored on, on active procrastination, they progress things in a much more kind of linear path in the same sort of path that we will describe as being typical of people that do not procrastinate or are not procrastinators, not passive or problematic procrastinators. So there's this kind of idea that uh, people that say that they're an active procrastinator, I don't think they really know what true procrastination looks like or is. They just be like, oh yeah, the last, I like leaving things to the last minute, but like really, they, they don't. Comparatively speaking, they don't leave things to the last minute. They just maybe tell themselves that and they maybe feel like, oh, it's two days before and oh, I've, I've only finished 65%. I'm like, man, you don't know what a real procrastinator is like. That's they, if, if they finish 65%, you know, two days before it's a bloody miracle. You know, if they've opened up the document two days before it's a bloody miracle, let alone 65%. And so I think that potentially can contribute that kind of fallacy or that weird, you know, story that active procrastinators tell themselves and tell the world can kind of contribute to the, the toxic normalization of procrastination, right? Because again, we we're talking about that's part of the problem is that we kind of, we joke about it. It's funny. It's not serious, uh, you know, and if we, if we over normalize something that is actually quite toxic, then it kind of gives it some sort of permission and makes it okay for us to not do anything about it. And so part of what I hope that paper could contribute was just to call out active procrastination as not just falling over at uh, not meeting the definition of procrastination in general, but also not actually being delay. And that's, you know, if, if, if we think that there are people out there that put stuff off on purpose because they think it, it helps them, but that's not actually how those people behave yet it's what they convey and what other people think that they do, then, you know, that's a bit of a, that's a bit of a myth that causes, that can cause problems and make people that truly procrastinate feel worse about how stressed they are about their procrastination. Like, oh, why can't I just feel great about this pressure? Why can't I lean into it like these other active procrastinators? That's well, not realistic, man. They don't even do that. Yeah. I mean, thank you for shedding lights on that. Cause I was actually really confused when I read that. I was like, oh, it sounds like this is, what is this like because i was thinking the same thing i was like is this even procrastination at this point because it's it's a it's a fascinating idea because i i was a really big procrastinator but now you know i'll get like my whole video edited on like friday my videos typically come out on monday on this channel and then i'll typically you know wait till i don't know maybe like sunday to do the instagram video which is like 30 seconds long or something like that and i i kind of did the same thing where i was like oh my god i'm so procrastinating and all that stuff but it's not nearly as bad as it used to be right and um but yeah i think that's a really uh, thank you for you know clarifying that because i think that is very important to kind of to kind of look at you know it's kind of the same thing with when we look at like disorders right when you have anxiety disorder instead of just you know anxiety you know in, in, in the moment or anything like that or you know be, if you have depression because you know somebody died in your family like that's very legitimate but you know if that persists on then it be, starts to become a disorder and you know it starts to you know may need you know some type of um big intervention at some point to kind of help that out but um yeah i i really like that idea and you know when one of the things that 
I feel, um, I think I had read this. Now, now I'm starting to doubt my uh, my research skills, but uh, I, I think I was reading somewhere that you incorporate um, CBT and some of the the ways of, of like of helping some of these um, procrastination um, uh, these habits and stuff. I mean, what what is your opinion on on CBT and its effectiveness? Because I I was it worked a lot with me with um, social anxiety in particular and kind of analyzing my or, um, analyzing my thoughts in a more objective way. Uh, but you know, how how do you um, what kind of therapy do you, do you use um, typically with you know people that are procrastinating or you know any of your any of your clients or anything like that? Yeah, good question. Um, so one-on-one, face-to-face, I do a lot of CBT. I consider myself predominantly kind of like CBT-based therapist. And there are a lot of, CBT is a very big umbrella and there are a lot of different approaches that fall under that. Um, and I like a lot of them. And it works really great when you've got an hour with people that you can kind of nut through things and you can teach them about challenging thoughts and cognitive distortions and thought logging and all those kind of wonderful things. Uh, and so, yeah, when my, when my clients in private practice, I, I often use CBT, um, and it's one of the few therapeutic approaches that has good evidence in the literature to help with procrastination. Um, and so, yep, great. I think going back to the approach that I tend to focus more on and where my research really comes into the fore is in... Uh, the time between sessions, the time between, you know, being able to do chunks of CBT with people. Um, And so with my research and the way that I approach procrastination on a bit more of an organic basis where people only need to spend kind of like, you know, 60 seconds a day or so interacting with an app to help them with their motivation. um, I tend to equate it a little bit to like the the type of interaction you have therapeutically less so cognitive behavior therapy and more just therapy in general where a therapist will very rarely give you advice and say you need to do this you know and you think about other apps out there you know and again like my apps in weight loss so i kind of use that as a frame like other weight loss apps out there they're often like oh here's an article about how you should eat here's an article on nutrition here's an article on a good recipe here's advice from someone that's been successful something like that um and it's very prescriptive and i the way that i describe it kind of pushes motivation onto people of like this is what you should do but you might know that therapists very rarely push motivation like that we we try and pull motivation more so we ask you questions that get you to kind of come up with your own advice right and that's much much more powerful Uh, it's much more efficient um i mean for one if it's your idea you're way more likely to actually do it than if we tell you what to do plus we don't like it when you blame us for it not working because you haven't done it correctly (laughs) so you know and you don't like it, it works really well when you've got an hour with people, but you don't need to spend an hour with people to pull motivation out of them. It's really just this combination, combination of these questions that if we craft them correctly, and if they're asking the right sort of things in the right sort of ways for the right sort of reasons, based on what your goals are and where you're at, then by virtue of you answering things in a way that you've not had to answer them before, thinking it forces you to think about them in a way that you might not have thought about them before or at least not thought about them recently and so instead of planting an idea in your head around what you need to do to not procrastinate what you need to do to achieve your goal what your next step is instead of trying to give you that suggestion we just ask you 
and then you're almost giving yourself the suggestion and it's much more compelling for you to act on your own advice and what you say you're going to do than act on something we tell you to do um, and so that's kind of the approach that i that kind of the therapeutic philosophy um, that i broke down and i think part of what makes this research low-hanging fruit is because before smartphones we couldn't do something like that like not as efficiently what were we going to post you something like you know something this big that asks you one question a day and give you a stamp to post it back like that was never going to be feasible as a therapeutic approach um and but smartphones really unlocked a lot of opportunities and i think the first set of opportunities that people grab with smartphones is that they just digitize pre-existing therapeutic modalities so there's a lot of cbt apps out there that will just be like a digital version of cbt um but what i did is i really tried to you know dismantle all the reasoning behind why cbt works and why therapy works in general pick it apart completely and rebuild it for the digital sphere from first principles um and by doing that it means that we can shake off paradigms like you need an hour a day or even you need five minutes a day or even the concept that i need to educate you on not eating so much mayonnaise like <laughs> you know that mayonnaise is great but like you know don't eat a tub of it a day like you know i don't need to tell you that man <laughs> you tell yourself yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, I think that's a really big part of, you know, it's, it's always interesting because, you know, some of my friends were you know, interested in therapy, um, especially during the pandemic, you know, and that was the only one that was pretty like, I mean, I have a freaking YouTube channel called Mental Health Casual, right? You know, so it's, hard to, it's not like I'm not open with it, right? So, um, you know, a lot of them were kind of asking me, you know, like, what, what can I kind of expect from it? What can I, and I always, you know, what, do you think they'll help me, you know, figure this stuff out? I'm like, well, they'll probably help you figure out what you already know, you know, and it's, it's, it's interesting because there is a lot of that in, in therapy is, you know, trying is just figuring out. Cause I mean, it's just like you said, we have a lot of these answers kind of innately, but it's almost like part of a one, uh, the other part of us, like the Jekyll and Hyde, like Hyde's just trying to like, uh, like stop all the prog pro progression going forward. Cause he still wants to have a good time and go ape shit and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's, it's interesting once you get, it's basically, I feel like therapists a lot of times are, are there to make sure you don't get in your own way a lot of times, you know, um, because I feel like that's what was really happening, you know? And I think, uh, I, I think that's a really tremendous thing. And, you know, you had mentioned smartphones. I'm just curious if there is any, I don't, I don't know, I don't want to say correlation, but um, do, does technology have a big impact on procrastination? You know, I'm a big um, gamer, but I don't, and I love anime. I, you know, I have another, I have another YouTube channel where I talk about anime all the time, but I, I do notice when I'm, you know, like, hard into an anime or hard into if we can even take like netflix as a universal example like everybody does netflix mm. and, and stuff i mean does technology have a really big um uh play or a really big uh role in people procrastinating and how do you how do you kind of address address that in a day and age where it's really hard not to i mean you, we're not going to go into like hermit mode right we're not always going to we're not all going to just go into our own little caves and all right you guys chill here you guys don't need a technology just leave it alone right obviously we need to i mean we're doing a zoom interview right now so there, <laughs> there's obviously a need for it uh, but what is your opinion on technology and it's and i guess uh, i'm kind of making this assumption but it's linked to to procrastinating 
Yeah, I think uh, it's a pretty safe assumption, right? And it seems intuitive and it's true. You know, it's true. I think uh, there, I can't remember the stats. I never really delved too far into the literature. I just touched it to make sure it's true that, uh, you know, we have been procrastinating more since technology has become more available. And it's not just technology, it's particularly social media that these are kind of massive conglomerates and giants that we get a lot of our social connectivity through. And they're absolutely geared to hack our impulsivity and hack our kind of dopamine reward-based circuits where uh, they want us to stay engaged for longer. They want us to get addicted. And so uh, a big element of why we procrastinate, it's not the only element, but it is a big contributor is just how much we uh, prioritize or prefer short-term gratification rather than short-term sacrifice for long-term gain. Um, and so it's absolutely kind of a trap uh, that many of us fall into. Um, so it's a problem. How do we deal with that? Uh, yeah, it's complicated, man. Uh, so how do I do that with getting people to reflect on question once a day? I can you know, potentially ask them about, well, what does it mean to you? And, uh, you know, you talked a little bit about what I would consider my definition of dysfunction of is your behavior hurting you or hurting people around you? Um, I don't really care how much you drink, man. Like if you can drink 10 bottles of wine a night, um, because you're somehow immune to alcohol and function perfectly the next day and it not harm your health and like, and you've got the money, like, you know, it doesn't meet my definition of dysfunction so go for it right but i've never met any human being that can drink that much without it affecting them in some way shape or form let alone the addictive properties of the chemical and and that you know just pure addiction and reliance on something having negative consequences um and so you know i'm not going to tell anyone not to use social media but ultimately i can ask you like well how much is it actually affecting you and is it affecting you to the point that you want to do something about it and if it is affecting you to the point that you want to do something about it what can you do about it and if you can do something about it what do you do about it have you ever in your life been in a period where you've not uh used social media so heavily or to the point that it negatively impacts your life or the lives of people around you what happened then what was different about then to now uh, what about other people that have shaken the, the addiction to, to social media? What did they do? Th these sorts of questions, you have the answers, like you said, you have the answers inside of you. Um, and they just, it's often is just about bringing them into the fore and, and thinking about the answers and reflecting on them and going, oh, okay, well, I've got a, you know, this is a choice point to use a therapeutic language. This is, this is a point at which I get to choose you know, whether I, I step forwards or step backwards or step left or step right and which way do I want to be going. Um, so that's maybe how I do it in kind of just like a, a more subtle transactional pulling kind of motivation way. Therapeutically, um, I work with people that have social media addiction. Um, not intentionally, I'm a generalist, man, like, but it's just a problem and, you know, I get all sorts of problems. And so I, I guess I like being a generalist privately because I get to it makes me feel a little bit more connected to what people are going through. Um, not just generally, but like, you know, uh, sorry, not just specifically, but generally in society, you know, I feel like there's a pretty good match of, of prevalence that I see. Um, and so social media addiction is definitely a, something I see a lot, um, particularly in younger people. And um, quite often we just, we follow the same line of questioning, but it's much more gentle. I don't barrage them quite so heavily as I did just in that example. Um, and then we can 
practice things like setting goals around well like if you don't know who you are without being so deep into social media are you interested enough in finding out and often the answer is yeah man like you know i, I know that it's hurting me in some way shape or form and i am interested in finding out so okay well like i don't want to tell you to delete all your social media and you know go full hermit um you know for the rest of your life that seems a bit extreme but your goal isn't necessarily to quit your goal is to find out what it could be like if you used it less and so what is the minimum amount of change that you can make to that would satisfy that that need or the curiosity to understand what life could be like if you use it less um and one client in particular i'm thinking of she really surprised me because she said oh i think i could quit for a week cold turkey and that would be interesting i was like man i was thinking like a day but all right if that's what you want a week and this is another reason i don't like to push motivation because i don't want to prescribe people a day if they've got a week in them i don't want to prescribe people a week if they've got only got a day in them and so you know, uh, and then I kind of, I supported her in that and she actually lasted eight or nine days. Um, and it was a very enlightening experience for her. She reinstalled it, but when she reinstalled it, it kind of halved her consumption. She was doing about six hours a day. She was down to three hours a day, um, which is massive progress for her. And yeah, amazing. So anyway, again, long-winded way of uh, responding to you, answering you, but social media addiction and social media is, is a huge problem and absolutely kind of impacts our life and i think what the how it re relates to procrastination is that we've we've got these higher order goals that we want to achieve in life but they require they're not necessarily palatable in the short term they require some level of short-term sacrifice and social media and and smartphones often provide us these kind of short-term gratification that is more satisfying or appealing uh in the immediate moment and that immediate choice point that often makes us prefer sitting down on the couch and scrolling for 10 minutes then sitting down and working on cutting up a podcast for 10 minutes right uh and our life is just this accumulation of these choice points or these decision points and so i think yeah smartphones have absolutely given us more to contend with um you know if we didn't have smartphones if we lived on a farm if there was no internet uh you know if all we had was a tractor or a dog and you know like 50 minutes of internet connectivity per day like we would definitely take advantage of you know that internet connectivity and connecting to the world and you know posting podcasts or having these these chats um compared to you know the the buffet of appealing compelling attractive kind of smartphone based uh, options that we have in front of us yeah, no, I think that's a really good, you know, and I like the, you know, when you're talking about it, it's, just, it's really this dopamine rush, right? It's just, oh, I go on this site, you know, a little dopamine, I go on this site, it's a little dopamine, I go on this, and it's just like, you know, all of a sudden you have like, you know, 50 tabs open and, you know, it's a, it's interesting, right? Because when we talk about, you know, when you were talking about like, oh, was there ever a time that you didn't do social media, all that kind of stuff, it's very rare to hear kids ever say like, even remember a time when they weren't on social media, right? Uh, nowadays, I mean. Um, whereas I, you know, when I grew up in the nineties, you know, it was like all dial up internet. Everybody had like pagers. People don't even know what pagers are anymore. Yeah. And, if mom wanted uh, to make a phone call, you have to get off the internet. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it was all this stuff that really, you know, I didn't even, you know, now granted video games was, were starting to get a lot more, um, you know, creative and it was starting to become a big, big part of my life as well. But, 
you know, it, it's interesting to hear, you know, that, that's why I, I really, um, you know, have a lot of uh, empathy for this future generation because, you know, the technology that we had was incredible by our standards, but the technology now is just absolutely insane. You know, I'm watching these video games that look like a movie, you know, I'm just like, man, this is, this is why, you know, when, when it was the most crazy thing when my mom walked in one day and she's like, what are you watching? And I was like, oh no, I'm playing a video game. And she's like, what? Like, you know, it's, it's wild when you get that response to it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting what you were talking about with um, one of the things that I read is this idea of uh, low intensity and high frequency, right, as, as, a, as an intervention for procrastination. And I want to, would you mind going into that a little bit? Because I feel like this was something that I ended up doing when I ended up going back to the gym because I was out of the gym for like six, six or seven months when I was in... Um, I was in quarantine and once I moved, I just was like, you know what, I'm going to go back to the gym. I know, you know, there's a lot of things going on, but, uh, and I know I'm not in shape anymore, but I'm going back to the gym. And immediately the first day I tried to pick up 50 pound dumbbells, tried to curl them like I used to. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And just immediately fell off. And I was like, all right, we're picking up the tens mm. the next day and we're just going to work our way up from there. And now I'm actually stronger than I was before the pandemic, but it took me like three or, you know, about five months to get to that point. Um, but you know, could you explain that, that philosophy? Cause I really, I really do like that. I just, um, hadn't thought about it so much for procrastination, but I think it's, I think it's, it makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, so that, that, uh, high frequency, low intensity approach is kind of how I describe, you know, what I'm trying to do between clinical sessions to help people with their procrastination. And you don't even need, you know, you don't even necessarily need the clinical sessions to help people with procrastination. Just those high frequency, low intensity sessions alone could be enough to catalyze their behavior and, and slowly affect big change. Um, and so what I, when I was coming up with this approach, I was really trying to build something for problem procrastinators. And as soon as some sort of not appealing task seems gnarly and a bit like big uh or you know oh, i don't have five minutes for that i can't think about that for five minutes um i can't think of that for like even three minutes i don't want to do that um so i was really kind of looking at this kind of how do i break something up to the smallest smallest piece that's going to make some sort of meaningful change and just give people that just give people the the minimum amount possible because procrastinators will always go for something else that's that's nicer or easier or more appealing instead and so i had to make kind of my alternative that was going to help them as as you know appealing and small as possible and so uh yeah that's what i did just it, when i barraged you with those questions about um you know social media addiction uh you know i gave you like 10 in uh, 30 seconds um instead i just give people one question and ask them to answer that and i find that if i do that you know, once a day or twice a day as I did in my lab work. Um, but it, it works also on once a day, if you can do it for a little bit longer, like more than a, more than a couple of weeks, um, then that's all you need to start this kind of slow snowball effect with people's behavior starting to follow. Because what happens when you get people to reflect on these things, uh, that are not intense you know we're not talking about sitting down and i'm going to grill you on the meaning of life for an hour we're talking about i just want to borrow like 60 seconds of your day i want to ask you one question i want you to think about the answer to that one question i want you to answer that one question so it's it's about as 
you know, small intensity as you can possibly get that has some sort of therapeutic meaning. And if I do that to you one day, and if I ask you to answer one of these questions on one day, once it's going to not really do anything. It's not going to change your behavior. And if I ask you on a second day, it's not going to change your behavior. If I ask you a third day, probably still nothing will happen. But if I ask you on, you know, keep asking you these types of questions about what you value, uh, what you care about, what works for you, um, you know, the, the things that you might, uh, your, your, your crutches, you know, your relationship with social media or your relationship with junk food and the things that you tend to impulsively go for and that you know are not good, good for you in the long run. And if I keep asking you these questions, but you still keep living your life uh, behaviorally at odds to the things you know that you say you value, the things that you say you keep saying that you know you should be doing, then that creates a bit of a sense of, well, you know, one of my, you know, one of my users is described as frustrated. She was really frustrated for like two and a half weeks that nothing was changing, but it took about two and a half weeks for that frustration to break. And for her to go, okay, well, you know, nothing's changing. I keep saying that I'm going to be doing these things or that this is what I really want in life, that this is what my true goals are, but nothing's changing. Well, I have to change. And you either change, you know, what you value and have to make your values align your behavior, which is like, oh, I like mayonnaise or I really value cake or your values are stronger than your behaviors. And in order to decrease that level of discomfort, in the, the dissonance between your, your, your thoughts, comments, and actual behaviors, you have to change your behaviors or stop, or stop answering these questions or stop thinking about it. And so that's really, I guess, the, the cumulative effect of this high frequency and high frequency being you know, like once a day, as opposed to therapeutically you know, like one hour every week or every fortnight. You do once a day, but low intensity sort of, less than less than a minute or so the cumulative effect of that is this kind of gradual easing of behavioral change as behavior needs to become more aligned with what people say and so that's kind of the at the that's kind of the dna that's the crux of my my research and how that stuff works and so I think like when you were talking about going to the gym and going to weights you said that you know it's that high frequency low intensity uh, approach seemed to work for you and I guess when you say that what I'm kind of imagining is that you instead of committing to going to the gym for like an hour and, and you know hitting your 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 personal maxes or personal bests um, you probably were doing something more along the lines of what I do when I go to the gym which is like man if I get in the car and if I end up in the car park of the gym I'm pretty happy like I'm that's that's it that's my that's my benchmark because I know like once I get to the car park of the gym, I'm going, like, oh, I'm, I'm here now. I might as well like go and see if like, you know, a squat rack's free. Uh, and if it's not free, I'm like, oh, I might as well go like run on a treadmill or something. I'm already here. Right. But I don't send the benchmark at the squat rack and the, and the, and the treadmill. I send the benchmark of the car park of the gym. Uh, you know, that's my, that's my personal sort of, you know, uh, weight related or, you know, gym related, uh, you know, low intensity um goals which is as someone that would probably prefer to you know sit around and scroll social media uh you know it's it's less of a competition um or it's more of a competition between social media and you know driving to the car park of the gym than social media and spending an hour kind of running on the treadmill and lifting weights like i'd probably if i've had a long day at work be like uh, i probably just i want to chill out so is that kind of what you were talking about when it comes to 
uh, high frequency. Low yeah, frequency. no, that, that was exactly it. I think, you know, because at first I was like, oh, I got to be here for an hour at least. And then I, so I decided to, you know, dramatically reduce it and then just do the things that I like to do, which I love mm. lifting weights, but I hate cardio. So eventually I started, you know, I started with the, just lifting weights and you know, I was just like, all right, not going to do cardio. That went on for about two months. And then finally I was like, I can walk. I think I seem to be able to walk. So then I ended up going on a treadmill for like 10 minutes to kind of warm my body up a little bit and then started, you know, then I would go into the weight just so I wouldn't get too uh, worn out. And so now I, I walk about a mile and a half on the treadmill and then um, and I'm able to do that after uh, after a workout, that kind of thing, just because I don't like to get um, too cardio heavy before um, before lifting weights and stuff. But, uh, you know, now I'm I'm pretty high frequency with my my um, high intensity with my weights now, but it took me a while to get there. You know, that's, that's the thing is I, I like this idea of the snowball effect because eventually the snowball turned into a boulder, you know, and now it's, mm. you know, it's got the momentum going to the point where, you know, I talk about the story all the time. Like there are often times where I just show up at the, the parking lot, I get into the gym and I'm like, shit, I didn't actually want to be here. I don't know. I don't even remember like getting here, but my body's so instinctive to go at this time that it just yeah. ends up happening. Right. And so I'm just there. I'm like, I can't just go now. I'm not even sweating. So I might as well do something. And then that kind of, you know, that uh, eventually ends up, you know, going, it's, it's basically a downhill battle from there. It's just, you know, just now that I'm there, it's, I don't have to worry about any of the men mentality of, oh, I got to drive. I mean, my gym is very close. It's like a mile and a half away. It's not even that far. So I, I, that, I, mean, I think that was the other thing was getting a gym that was close to me, you know, is, is really important, you know, but uh, yeah, I, I really like this idea because the problem that I find when people do too high intensity, too much high intensity stuff is they just quit like right away because they're yeah, like, oh it. yeah, this, this was, this was all, I knew this was too hard. I knew, I knew it's it. It's too big. Know? It's too much. Like as soon as, yeah, as soon as you get sick and I'm sort of getting over a cold, so I got this kind of, you know, you probably hear it in my voice, but you know, I, I didn't go to the gym for the past couple of days. Uh, you know, I don't want to do anything. Uh, and that's life and that's fine and that's normal and you've got to rest, but that's going to happen. Right. But if for you going to the gym is spending an hour and just like, you know, in beast mode and crushing it, if that's your expectation for yourself at the gym, it's such a high expectation that it's not going to take much to kind of rock the boat and for you to disappoint yourself. And if you don't feel like you can meet that expectation of yourself, then that's kind of like a little bit internally disappointing and crushing. And just by virtue of like wanting to avoid that feeling, you, you're probably going to want to not think about going to the gym that often because you know that you're not going to meet your standard. And so you're setting yourself up to fail if you go in full high intensity from the get-go. I think it's much more organic and sustainable to just set the bar really low and let the habit form. And, you know, because it's about, it's about perseverance, not perfection, right? And that's what really matters in the, in the long run. Um, so, yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right going in. Um, yeah, just hell for leather on the first day is people that do that often quit sooner rather later and that's seems inevitable to me as a yeah. behavior researcher yeah or i mean or they get injured and then they're not able to go back to it for months on end right so it's like it's yeah, you know it's, it's damned if you well it's basically damned if you uh do either <laughs> way if you but, do anything. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah um but uh you know it's interesting there was um i don't know why i found this so profound it sounds it sounds like very simple in my head and i like I, it was something that I had to come to terms with a little bit later in my life, but um, I was reading somewhere um, on your website and it was, you're talking about like closing the gap between intentions and actions, right? And it's interesting to me because I actually got very confused with intentions and actions. It's almost like I thought they were the same thing. Like if I thought about it, 
it was in, you know it was action right like i was actively thinking about it and it's interesting that that like I, I when i read that line i was like what the heck was i thinking before it's so interesting that my mind kind of thought that way you know when i was doing this when i was starting my first youtube channel i was just like oh i'll just you know do this but then i get way too drunk and then i wouldn't be able to do the the damn podcast i was doing on my other channel and i i mean do you find that there's this like cognitive dissonance with people that that um that that are procrastinators that it's almost it's almost like i mean you know in like aa when they say like the first step is to say like oh you know admit that you have a problem that people are just like oh it's not you know i'm actually doing these things and how hard is it to get people out of that mindset that those are two completely separate things like i think i was reading some, or i was i heard this quote and i can't remember it exactly but it was like uh this person was talking about a mentor that they had and they had mentioned that um plans without execution are just fantasies and I heard that. I was like, oh, that hurt. Because I was, I was exactly the <laughs> way I lived my life. But I mean, how do you, uh, uh, that's just such a fascinating thing. Because I, like I said, I didn't really realize that until it just kind of came into my face. And I was, I was just looking at that. Um, how do you get people to realize that? Because it took me a while to actually realize that there was a huge difference between just thinking about it in my head and intellectualizing it, so to speak, and actually acting. I mean, I was a philosophy major, and that was like mainly who the people I read. They always just wrote things down. They talked about social <laughs> change and never never changed anything. They just wrote a bunch of books that sold really well, you know? So, I mean, how do, yeah, you, yeah, how do yeah. you get that through to people? Yeah, good question, man. Uh, honestly, I've never ha really had to try because uh, people read or as soon as I say it, they're like, oh, of course, clear. I think it's one of those, I think it's one of those lines or one of those concepts that's immediately intuitive, but it's not necessarily something that we, uh, you know, think about consciously a lot. Um, and it's one of the, this kind of gap between like, oh, intending to do something is not enough. You actually have to do it. And I think one of the problems that I have with, well, no problems I have with it. I think one of the, the, you know, the limitations of a lot of the work on procrastination or a lot of the work on mo motivation, the motivation field in psychology is that, you know, a lot of researchers and a lot of um, you know, even therapeutic practices, they are all built up around getting people to the point where they're motivated and intend to do something and then just assume that people are going to do the thing that they're intended to do. But it's so it's so salient in my mind that, you know, back to the rehab clients that getting them to the point that they intend to do something and that they, they feel motivated is, is not enough. And there's a giant underappreciated, uh, under investigated and under supported gap between intention and action. But I think like most people I've spoken to, and that's maybe, and that's maybe an artifact of just because I, you know, I'm a psych and people come to see me because they acknowledge there's a problem. Like I, I very rarely have to go to people that feel like they, they don't have a problem. We'd call them in pre-contemplative state, right? They're not even thinking that there's an issue. And man, there are so many people that think they got issues that I don't I, I'd, I'd never have to really, you know, focus on convincing people <laughs> that, that think otherwise. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I don't really know that I've got a good question for that. I, it, honestly, it's not something I've ever really struggled with. Um, I, when I started talking about research and procrastination at the beginning of my PhD and, you know, I'd go to a party and someone would ask me about what I do and I'd talk about it. I, I started off thinking that I'd have to work really hard to convince them it's a, actually a problem and not something to be joked about. But I think, what I've found is that, you know, our first socially acceptable, um, you know, interaction when we talk about procrastination is to kind of laugh about, oh yeah, I'm a professional procrastinator, as someone said to me the other day. And like, that's great. But then if you actually 
continue having that conversation with them. You don't have to scratch that surface very hard until they go, oh yeah, you know, it's actually really caused a lot of problems in my life. Um, and so people, I think people intuitively know that, yeah, there's a it's gap between intention and action. I think if there's a problem, uh, it's that we often don't talk about that level enough. We don't talk about, yeah, uh, um, you know, the, the real pernicious aspect of, of procrastination enough and give enough airtime to the gap between intention and action. So yeah, again, probably a roundabout way of responding. I don't know if I actually responded to you, but um, yeah. I don't no, I think that's calling out is enough. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a good a good point, right? Because it's it's this is just something that I had thought about when you know I was I was looking at this because it is it, it's it's interesting because you know as you said, um, typically when people are going to psychologists, therapists, you know anything like that, they they already know that they have a problem or their family has identified that they have a problem or something like that, and so it, it's uh, it's important to kind of distinguish those people from you know maybe the people out there that aren't. Um, maybe, I don't want to say as lucky, but, you know, as I guess fortunate so much to at least realize there is a problem before it's too late. Right. You know, I mean, I think that's, it, it always crushes me. You know, my, my, some of my family members like to watch that, those hoarding shows and stuff. And I'm always like, why? I mean, it's so depressing. You know, they get to this point where they've accumulated all the, these bad habits to the point where they can't even get out of their own house. You know, they can't, and their own house is unha uninhabitable. And it's just, I don't know. It's just so wild to me that it's, it's, um, <laughs> that it's, it's, it's actually like television and it's so popular, but I, I guess sometimes, sometimes people, um, and I, I'm guilty of this too. Sometimes we need, um, those people that don't seem like they have it or seem like they have it worse than us to make it feel better, make us feel better about the situation that we're in sometimes. And, uh, it's a, kind of a messed up way that humans do that. I've, I've noticed it in a lot of people, including myself. Um, mm. but you know, I'll just, I'll just look at something and I'll just be like, Oh my God, you know, like a Maury or something like that. Or, you know, you're watching something and it's like, he is, and you're not the father. And I'm like, yeah, geez. And it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous to the, to the point where it's, um, yeah, it's just it's just so so crazy, and uh, you know, it's just so wild how we get to this point in a lot of these things. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really good uh, I think that's a really good uh, good point that you had over there. But yeah, before I, I give you the floor to kind of give your message to the people out there, I was curious about this um, this idea. I know we we basically talked about it throughout this podcast, but I just want to kind of to. Uh, wanted to get your thoughts on it and maybe if you could delve into it a little bit this idea of like the four interlinked causes of procrastination right um i was kind of reading a little bit about this and i was like oh wow it's uh, i think it's called a, tem a temporal motivation theory and i was looking at it i was like oh wow i never thought about the i mean one thing that you had mentioned earlier right is i mean one of them i, I guess i'll just read some of them out loud and just in the, the mm. briefest way that i can expectancy um sensitivity to delay failure to appreciate value of task and um, the fact that they lack metacognition or self-awareness and capacity to think analytically about our own thinking, which would be like where CBT comes in and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I was just kind of curious because, you know, when you talked about like failure to appreciate the value of tasks, right? I mean, I think that's really the, the problem with I think that's like the first problem with procrastination is literally just people looking at a task and being like, oh, it's not that important. And then all of a sudden, you know, later on, later on in their, 
their life or their career or whatever they're doing or if they're a student later on in their student career it just comes back to bite them in the ass and you know the form of an f or you know in the form of something else i mean could you kind of talk about uh that that structure and um mm. uh kind of uh you know how it how it kind of works yeah i think um it's interesting that you say you think value is the the one that uh you know underpins all procrastination because it's not man and, and what what actually happens is that what I find people always pick one and for them, it's that one. That's, that's the cause of my procrastination. And it's always one of those four, like, and there's, there's also, there's another one. There's just the concept of a deadline. And if there's no clear deadline, then you're more likely to put stuff off. And that's, um, you know, it's, it's in the core temporal motivation theory. Um, you know, the theory, but I don't think it was in the one that uh, you just listed off because what you listed off were the, the approaches that I use to uh, the, the things I target to help people with their procrastination. And I can't necessarily, we, we often can't manufacture deadlines, although you can kind of create arbitrary ones or find meaningful ones. But anyway, um, yeah, so it's, it's funny. Some people are like, yeah, value. Like I just never really think enough about how this thing that I'm putting off fits into my grander plan. Um, I don't really understand or give much thought to the the gravity of the importance of this task. And for some people, that's it. And like, that's what they really need to focus on if they ever notice themselves procrastinating. And I think temporal motivation theory can be useful in the sense as a bit of a diagnostic test of, you know, if, if we are procrastinating, what are some of the options of the reasons we might be procrastinating and therefore what do we need to do to uh you know reorient our focus to attack or try and reduce our procrastination for you it seems like if you can spend more time actually articulating or thinking about uh how the thing that you're putting off actually has greater meaning to your life and and how much better you'd off off you'd be down the track if you did that thing then maybe you'd be less inclined to procrastinate and one of my favorite strategies to reduce procrastination or to help people reflect on this stuff um specifically works for for increasing a sense of value and it's a it's a strategy i called mental time travel where you you project yourself into the future and you imagine an older version of yourself and you imagine yourself, maybe, maybe it's important for you to get this task done. And if it's, let's say if it's studying at university, then imagine yourself in like 10 years, if you, and what does your future self look like in 10 years? If you have not done, if you don't do that task, if you don't finish this assignment, if you fail your course, if you don't pass, you know, your, your degree, if you don't get that job, what do you look like? What's your life actually look like in vivid visceral detail in 10 years? You know, what color is the fence of your house? Do you even have a house? Like, where do you live? Do you have a partner? What's your job? What's your self-esteem? Those sorts of things, that level of detail and kind of build that picture in your mind, mentally time travel to the future and kind of look around and open your cupboards um, and then do the same thing. But if you do do the task, right? And if you do this assignment on time, what does that mean? What does that mean to your course? What does that mean to your degree? What does that mean to your job? What does that mean to your life? What does that mean to your esteem, your fan group, even where you live, the city you live in the world? Open your cupboards in the future, like, you know, poke around, right? Really get there, mentally time travel there. And, you know, if they're the same, it doesn't really matter. The task is not that important, right? And take it or leave it, it's fine. But if you can, if you honestly, you know, try and project yourself and there's a big difference between those two then your answer should kind of come to you of like well how important is this 
if it's a big difference, you know, if your life would really suck, if you don't do it, then come on, man, like you're really hurting yourself here. And, you know, you know, the answer to that, again, it's not something that I can teach you. I can't write an article and tell you that, but you know, you can do the thinking. Um, and yeah, anyway, so yeah, that's, that's value. And that's a strategy that you might like to employ yourself if, if value is a real issue for you. But I often find that people, it's, it's, it's common for people to point to value. It's also very common for people to point to expectancy. And expectancy is probably the one that underpins more of my procrastination. Hmm. And I'm not a big procrastinator, certainly not anymore. Um, and yeah, I don't really have much excuse for procrastination these days because I should know better, right? Um, but it, uh, expectancy tends to be where I fall over. And expectancy is about, do I really think that the things that I'm investing my time in today are going to directly affect and improve my situation tomorrow? Um, so for example, if my goal is to, mm, I don't know, be happy in life, keep it general. Um, and my goal is to live a happy and fulfilled life. And for me, I have to think about what that means. And that means, well, you know, like spending a lot of good time with my family, um, having a, a good job, but not working too much, um, having meaning in the connections I build in work and not working in this you know, giant corporate machine where I can't make any change, yada, yada, yada. And then I've got this decision that I'm putting off of like, well, do I want to work? Uh, you know, do I want to work uh, more days or less days? Or do I want to pick up another shift, for example? And I'm putting off making that decision and I need to make that decision quickly because you know the, the boss needs to make decisions around you know, room availability and other people wanting shifts, yada, yada, yada. But in my mind, I don't really have a clear sense of expectancy that I don't know if this is actually going to help me or not. There's a lot of ambiguity in that decision-making process um, that kind of debilitates me. You know, it, it, I, don't, I don't see how it will affect my uh, future one way or the other. I know it will, but I just don't know how. And for me, that can kind of paralyze me sometimes. And that seems to be a common thread. I feel like that's quite a bad example. But what I'm trying to illustrate is ambiguity is the lack of solid expectancy between if I do A, it will lead to desirable outcome B. Um, and if you don't have clear expectancy, then uh, you know, you're, you're probably going to stall a little bit. And so much like mental time travel is a good strategy to help with value, to build a sense of expectancy, you... We, it's about answering questions you don't know the answer to. So, you know, look for role models, talk to mentors, you know, talk to someone that's walked that path before. So if I went to talk to a senior psychologist that's been in the industry for, you know, a decade that has the kind of life that I want to lead. And I got a few people in mind that do that. They live by the coast. They work a couple of days a week. They have a sweet life. I'm like, I want that life. I want to do that. Um, I might talk to them say like, Hey, this is my predicament. These are the challenges. These are the, this is kind of what I'm weighing up. What are the pros and what are the cons and just talk to them. They might give me like some extra information about how things might play out in the future that I hadn't considered, or maybe just talking to them and articulating in a way that really forces me to consolidate my values and, and plot specifically how this decision point might affect my vision for a future might help me build a sense of expectancy of going, okay, now I've got a bit better of a grasp of why doing this or how doing this thing will help me live the kind of life that I want or achieve the kind of goal that I want. So, you know, that's commonly why I put stuff off because I just feel like I don't know the right answer. So I don't do anything. Um, delay sensitivity is another concept uh, that you, you mentioned before. Delay sensitivity is this kind of, 
interaction effect between impulsivity. And so I was talking before about scrolling smartphones. And so some, sometimes people be like, I don't have a problem with expectancy. I don't have a problem with value, but man, like I, I just don't preference things that uh, will help me in the future, but require you know, short-term pain, long-term gain. I just don't do that enough. I will always take the easy way out to help my mood in the moment and not do things, not work hard and grind to help myself down the track. And that's where they fall over. Mm. Um, and so, and why it's called delay sensitivity in, in, you know, the list that you read out was because that our sensitivity or our impulsivity kind of how likely we are to sit on the couch and scroll on social media in any given moment is kind of relative to when the thing needs to be done. So if you cast your mind back to university and you got an assignment coming up and it's like a week before and you got a decision, you're either going to go work on your assignment or you're going to scroll on social media. You're like, well, I'm just, kind of, I'm just going to scroll for a bit, you know, no harm. Um, so you might do that, but you know, if it's the, if it's the day of, and it's due at midnight and you haven't started, like, what are you going to do? Is it going to be as tempting of a decision to scroll social media? probably not you know you're probably going to want to maybe maybe if you do some uh you know mental time travel um and if you have clear expectancy that yeah this is the thing that you need to do to pass the degree you know there's very little ambiguity there even though you might not have strong expectancy of how to do it or that you can succeed um that's a different that's a different problem but that concept of delay, delay sensitivity is how sensitive are you to the amount of time you've got remaining to do the thing that you need to do um and if you're really sensitive to that delay then you're um you're more likely to engage in that short-term gratification behavior and then that's the problem that you need to deal with so if that's what you suffer with and that's what we kind of need to target and work with you on and then metacognition is the other thing that you talked about which is um really thinking about thinking and being able to take a step back from your thoughts and and see yourself um and so that concept of you know, there being a gap between intentions and, and actions and realizing that that gap is, uh, you know, somewhat ever present and something that you have to put effort into working towards just to, to be able to step back and think about that in those terms can be enough to catalyze behavior. And if you don't think in that kind of metacognitive term of the, you being able to think about your thinking, then you're kind of too much in the experience and being influenced by your mood influenced by your decisions at the at any given moment and not being um, consciously at the helm of your own life enough to, to really take charge and, and get done what you need to get done. Uh, so yeah, again, long-winded way of kind of like going over those elements. And I think the thing I really like about temporal motivation theory and temporal motivation theory isn't well liked amongst a lot of procrastination researchers um, for lots of reasons that I can't really I guess going to given the time constraints of a podcast uh the thing i really like about it is i think it's really pragmatic and i think that the solutions are in the the elements like if you have low expectancy great build that if you lo have low value great build that if you are really impulsive or sensitive to the delay great work on that if you don't have that metacognitive reflection great build that other theories in procrastination don't give you that level of clear diagnostic um you know process and and solution um so yeah that's that's what it's about in my in my mind
Yeah, no, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, thank you for, for explaining that. I think it was really clear and concise. And, you know, going back to that mental time travel, I really liked that because I'm a big, um, I'm a big UFC fan. And it's funny when you see, <clears throat> like, there, there's like these little blogs that, or vlogs that come out, um, like the week before a fight will happen. And every single time I see somebody in training, right, they're doing a really hard round of just like hitting mitts and stuff. And the coaches will always have them raise their hands like they won the fight to envision themselves in that winning state after the fight. And it's so interesting. And they, they tell them, even when they're tired, like, no, raise your hand, raise your hands like this. And I was like, that's such an interesting thing. Because when you're talking about the specific, uh, how specific it was, like, oh, what's in your cupboard, all that stuff. I mean, that's a very specific part of the fight that isn't even, they, a lot of people would think is inconsequential, right? But mm -hmm. these people are literally doing doing that just so that you know how it feels to be that winner uh, you know uh, you know how it feels to to win that and you know you know you know where you're going i think that's uh, really what you're you're you know what you're talking about when you're talking about like ambiguity and stuff you know these people aren't in there to lose you know <laughs> they they want to win at all costs mm -hmm. which i mean obviously can can um hurt in some ways because when they do lose um there could be like a, a depressive funk and fighting is very very different than a lot of the other things in real life so um but I, I thought that was just an interesting like correlation right there but uh you know jason you've been very informative on a lot of this stuff and i really do appreciate your time um I, so i just wanted to you know kind of give you the floor to give my uh people a, a message whether they be you know procrastinators or anything like that i mean i mean what would you tell my audience yeah good question man um I don't know that I've got any like real neat little takeaways, you know, procrastination. I, I guess if I do, it would just be like the procrastination is super complicated. You know, there are lots of reasons you might procrastinate and, you know, those reasons change over time as well. You know, your sense of, you know, expectancy for a task as you get more experience in doing it, you, you tend to get a greater handle on how to do something. Um, and so not only is it really complicated in the sense that there are lots of different factors that go into it but those factors are, are shifting and dynamic and moving all the time um but if you really suffer with procrastination and it's a, a thing that's holding you back as 20 percent of the global population say it is it's totally something that you can work on and improve and you can you can do that cbt's uh, with a with a therapist being found to be pretty effective but it's also something that you can actively work on and improve in yourself if you give it the dedication it deserves not just from like oh yeah intend to one day i'll get around to dealing with my procrastination but you can actually take some real concrete action to work on these things and to shift the needle and um you know if you do research says that you know you're likely to earn more money in your career you're likely to suffer less health consequences you're likely to just be generally happier and have a greater life satisfaction um so you know it's 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 kind of funny sometimes talk about procrastination, but you know, all self-sabotage and self-defeat is kind of funny sometimes, but it's also a little bit sad. Um, so if it's really, if it's really a genuine problem for you, then I, I totally encourage you to, to think about it seriously and, and um, turn your mind to thinking about actually doing something about it. Cause uh, I promise it's, it's worthwhile if you can do, you know, it's almost like a really existential problem of you're putting off the things that you really care in, about in your life you know that is almost the meaning of your life that you're you're putting off um and, and what kind of life is that is that really what you want do a little bit of mental time travel you know, what does it look like for you if you don't get on top of your procrastination in 20 years is that what you want if not well yeah there's your answer and you can totally do something about it absolutely well jason i mean i think this is such a, a, gr a great thing because you know i mean talking about like the mental time travel i actually had like a 
um, this vision of myself one time and it was so like crazy because I'd been through like a lot of funerals and like a slow and a small period of time and it was so interesting to see how many people were there for those funerals even like my father who I didn't particularly like but seeing how many people were there for his funeral and I had this like clear vision one time not like a hallucination or anything but just kind of imagining myself in that state of you know when I'm at my funeral you know just kind of as a ghost at my funeral and looking at it and I was like I wonder if I'd have that many people there you know if I keep doing the things that I do if I'm uh, you know, if I'm this person that pushes everybody away because of my alcoholism, if I'm doing the same person, and it it really did change the way I looked at things. And I, now I'm like, I jokingly talk about this, but I'm like, you know, I want there to be a freaking parade at my funeral now. <laughs> you know, I want there to be so many people that have been touched by my life in some way that they they need like reservations to get a seat at my funeral. You know, and it really did change like the um, the perspective that I had of. Like, man, I need to, I, I want to make a difference now. And I think once people find that their why in life or, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, that turning point is just absolutely phenomenal. So once again, Jason, I just really appreciate you being on and talking about this uh, subject. As I told you, we we're talking a little bit off air. It's very important to me that people know the, um, the, the dangers of this, but just that it, it really is a problem. It's not, you know, it's not just mm. something to be joked about. So once again, Jason, thank you so much for being on. No, my pleasure, Lucky. Yeah, great chatting to you. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it, and I really love your perspective on these things. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that you're, you're doing this and, yeah, getting these messages out there. So thank you. Hey guys, thanks for watching Mental Health Casual. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe for more videos.